0: Chapter 10 of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter 10 After she had finished her letter and sealed it, Mem paused, wondering what to do with it. She was in an agony of reluctance to send such a pack of lies to her mother and father. She recalled the biblical warning against doing evil that good might come of it but she dared not face the evil that would certainly come if the truth were told as she sat irresolute beating the envelope against the tip of her fingers she saw miss miriam yore come into the observation car and pass on out to the platform she was followed by the famous unknown author they were both talking as before and the motion of the car threw them this way and that without checking their prattle Mem was hungry to hear how great people talked, to watch them behaving. She had never seen any before. She saw the porter of the observation car grinning in front of her foggily. He spoke twice before she heard back what he had said. "'Want me to mail your letter, lady, at next stop?' She nodded and gave it to him with a warm thank you. He would have much preferred a cold quarter. Mem saw that the platform was not crowded so she drifted out with labored casualness and sat down, pretending to study the scenery and to be quite deaf. Practice was making her a zealous actress, if not a good one. The author was just offering Miriam Yore a cigarette. Thanks, old thing. I don't dare. I've smoked myself blue in the face today. I've got to fill my lungs with fresh air while the porter makes up my drawing room, or I won't sleep. As I was saying, I think you're quite wrong about the moving pictures. Of course, most of those that have been done are abominable. But that's because they were done for the wrong people, by the wrong people. Have you seen me in Hypatia? There was a picture—poetry, passion, splendor, drama—in that scene where the Christian fanatics drove the wonderful Hypatia to the altar and stripped her naked and tore her to pieces, it was tremendous, you know, really! There was something there that only the camera could give. You didn't see me in that?" She was a genuine, have-you-seen-me, just what the French call a mat de vue. No, I must confess, I go so seldom. In England I saw mainly the cowboy pictures. I met some of the men of the 101 Ranch when they were on the other side. Mem noted that he said raunch. It must be glorious to say it naturally. He went on, I love the cowboy things. Nursery instincts still surviving, I fancy. But the big spectacles, such as you speak of, they leave me cold. They have all the faults of grand opera and no music. I can stand the silent drama, but not the silent opera. But what right have you to criticize if you haven't seen? Oh, but my dear Miriam, if they had been worth seeing, I'd have been drawn to them. Rot, my dear, utter damned rot, and you know it. You are the type of literary buzzard who is never drawn to anything except what is dead or is done in a dead style according to dead rules. You live in a time when a new art is being created before your eyes, and instead of leaping into it, You're afraid. You hang back like a child afraid of the ocean. You put in a toe and run shrieking. You go back and a little wave rushes up to the seat of your little panties and chills you. You feel the sand giving way and scream for Nursey to come drag you out. Why don't you plunge in and learn to swim? Face the breakers. If you can't rise over them, dive under them. What are you afraid of? If the moving-picture people are as stupid as you think they are, how easily they can be conquered by as great a mind as you think you are!" The author squirmed. Oh, I say, my dear Miriam, aren't you laying it on a bit strong? Aren't I on the train, going out to study your ocean? I want to swim. I'm going to try, really. That's better. It's a far better thing than you've ever done, you'll see. You've written good novels, stories, plays, essays, poems, all sorts of things, but men have done those for thousands of years. When you write a movie, you do what no man ever did before this generation. And look at me! I've played plays, I've sung light operas and grand operas and danced a little, but good lord, women have done those things for ages! in the moving picture i'm doing something that no woman before my generation ever did we are the pioneers the argonauts the discoverers we shall be classics as sure as ever classics were it's glorious the author was a trifle jealous of such fine writing from a singer and an actress he tried to put her in her place i see what you're driving at In fact, I've written much the same thing and said it to interviewers, who got it all wrong, of course—interferers, I call them—but what good did it do me? I was merely accused of trying to whitewash myself for going after big money. Of course I want the big money. I insist on it, or I should if they refused it. Which they don't—quite the contrary—but what I mean to say is, if I go in for moving pictures, I shall not try to do any of your grandiose things. They're all right in their place, but I think there's more art in the smaller forms. I want to do something smart, satirical, the high-comedy thing. The pictures seem to me to need the aristocratic touch more than anything else. Miss Yore yawned. Beware of the aristocratic touch, my dear. It means boredom most of the time. I know no end of aristocrats who are interesting, but that's because they are soldiers or statesmen, big game hunters, adventurers. But you're deadly drawing-rooms. Keep those off the screen, or you'll bankrupt your backers. The author yawned. Speaking of bankrupting your backers, old dear, I hear that you are doing your best to accomplish that. I was told by a man, who claimed to know, that you are getting ten thousand a week. Is it true?" Miriam rose and smacked his cheek lightly. Are you jealous? Yes, I am, rather. They're only giving me twenty-five thousand for my new piece. They said they couldn't pay me more because you stars were such—well, the word they used was hogs. It's a shame to pauperize me to fatten you fatten don't use the hideous word if you knew the agonies i go through to keep my flesh down all this money and all this glory and i'm hungry all the time she paused by the brass rail and gazed about the dark levels that seemed rather to revolve slowly about the train than to be left behind and she sighed strange place this little old world i was born on a prairie like this in a small town like the one we just rattled through I was a poor daughter of poor parents. Dad kept a drug store, a chemist's shop, as you'd say, and now, well, I've sung before kings and queens. I've had princes make love to me more or less pitifully. I've had diamonds from dukes. I was engaged to a duke once. You may have read or heard that idiotic story, That I Can't Kill, about the two children I had by the duke of—why, I never was alone with the man. But Anyway, I've had those scandals and splendors, and now I'm going back at a salary that, why, I could buy out most of the dukes I've met. And I get it all for pretending to suffer imaginary woes in imaginary situations. And you, you were the son of a rusty little Oxford don, and you're complaining because you get only 5,000 pounds for the moving picture rights of a silly fairy story you spin in a few months. It's a drunken old world, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for stealing its money. But I have to give the British government fifty-three per cent of all I get, he wailed. The U.S. income tax murders me, too, she sighed. She slipped through the door like her own LaTosca. The author laughed a dreary good-night, stood a moment, finishing his cigarette, and studying, out of the corner of his eye, the mute, meek auditor whom they had perhaps forgotten perhaps had been playing to all the time he wondered if mem knew who he was she had not heard his name and would not have recognized it if she had he felt like talking a lot about himself to somebody but he was englishy shy of broaching conversations he was himself a tight little isle with the gift for spreading his power around the world and making people think that his loneliness and timorousness and lack of savoir were reserve. The unknown and unknowing Mem was afraid that he was going to speak to her, but he did not dare. He flicked his cigarette overboard majestically and made a good exit. Then he crept away to his lonely drawing-room and shuddered at the prospect of entering the new world with its new people, a world of bounders, as he had been told. He left Mem dizzy with what she had overheard—the contrast between Viva and Miriam Yore was complete. The moving-picture planet was plainly one of enormous size and variety, but the wickedest thing about it in her eyes was the money it squandered. The richest banker in Calverley was a pauper compared with the woman who had just left the platform, and all she did was to stand up and have her picture taken. Mem had never heard of Hypatia, and she did not believe that any such thing had happened as Miriam Yor described. She did not know that the moving picture had been taken from a historical novel written by a clergyman. Neither did the clergyman, probably, as he had been dead for a quarter of a century before the pictures were taught to move. All that Mem knew of the Rev. Charles Kingsley's works was the Water Babies, and a poem from which her father was always quoting. Be good, sweet maid, and let who will be clever. Mem was not clever, and everybody knew it. Yet. She had not been good, and only two people knew it. Not having been good, she just had to be clever. End of chapter 10. Recording by Diana Beauvais.